There's a thing in uh, the world of snow skiing called the heuristic trap. You'll see very professional, accomplished skiers who will go down areas of avalanche. They think they can do anything. They have no no fear whatsoever. Sometimes leads to their death. We can have heuristic traps in presenting and speaking. Welcome to The Creative Rising, a series of conversations on career, courage, and creative leadership. I am your host, Blake Howard, recording live at Constellation Studio in historic Sweet Auburn in Atlanta, Georgia. And today, we are going to adventure into the most fearful situation of all, the number one most common and greatest fear, the fear that outranks even death in most public surveys, the panic the fear, the trembling of public speaking. And today we are going to learn from a friend of mine, Sam Harrison, an author, an expert in idea spotting and idea selling. And we want to pick his brain about presenting our ideas and our speaking skills. So Sam, thanks for being here. Thanks, Blake. Good to be here. Appreciate it. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about your backstory and when you realized that you wanted to go into a creative line of work. So uh, I come from a family. I have three siblings, both my parents and all four of us kids were all extroverts. And my mother was a theater major and a tap dance instructor. Uh, so a lot of our creativity came from her. As a matter of fact, when I was a kid, she would do these classes called expressions. And she would bring in young kids and teach us poetry and dance and songs and uh, recitations. And I hated it at the time because I wanted to be out playing ball with my buddies. But uh, it turned out to be a great thing. It, it taught me a lot about self-expression. By the time I got through college, my brothers both established with firms, one in Atlanta, one in D.C. So I went to work with my brother in Atlanta with his firm originally uh, and did projects with my brother's firm in D.C. from time to time. So that got me into the world of creative communications, brand communications, uh, product development eventually. And so it's gone from there. Wow. Yeah. So it really, really was a family ordeal on the on the more of the acting side or being comfortable in front of an audience and then also on the being a creative for hire side. Yeah, yeah, a little of, of both. Is there a specific time or instance or moment when you realized the importance of idea selling? So the importance of being able as a creative professional to sell your work? Well, I think I saw that early on. I, it was, um, I watched both of my brothers. They were both very uh, adept at presenting and, and selling ideas. And I started watching other people as well. And it doesn't, it doesn't take long to realize. <laughs> it only takes a few mistakes to realize uh, the importance of that. If you can't it's one thing to have ideas, but if you can't sell those ideas, can't present those ideas, then they're going to sit in drawers. And, and I, I found that happening from time to time, and I saw it happening to people around me. So, yeah, uh, early I saw the need for it. It's interesting when I, you know, I wrote uh, the book Idea Spotting, 
uh, and I wrote one before that called Zing, and those were both books about creative process, finding inspiration, and I went, began talking, speaking about those subjects uh, all over North America, and what I kept hearing over and over again was, you know, this is great, it really helps me a lot, uh, and this is from creatives who attended my workshops and my keynotes, but they said they would often say, "But where I'm having a lot of problems is getting those ideas that I do have sold to my boss, to my decision maker." So, and I think we hear that over and over again in the creative world. Yeah. Don't you find that to be the case? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I remember two things when when I was young, coming out of school, I went to a big design conference, and Chip Kidd was presenting. Yeah, sure. So, a famous graphic designer, really known book for design. doing book design, right? Yeah. And I remember thinking. You know, his work's pretty cool. He had, he had uh, just released this Superman kind of series of comic uh, graphic novels that were really beautiful. And I remember thinking, wow, his work's really, really pretty good. But his stage presence, he is entertaining. Like, he he is an entertainer, maybe more than a designer. And I remember connecting the dots in my mind a little bit of, wow, you really have to have a unique ability to present your work and your ideas to captivate people. So that was one thing that I, I remember learning early on. And then uh, a friend of mine once was, was talking to me about the, the need to get approval or agreement from a client or a boss when you have a great idea. So if you have the best idea in the world uh, and, you, and you work really hard on it, you perfect it, but then you present that to a non-creative person they're the gatekeeper they're the one that that decides if that idea makes it or put gets put in a drawer like you said and uh i remember the light bulb went off thinking okay you gotta fi- you gotta find the right way to convince them that this idea is right because it's easy for us designers or us purists on the creative side to say this 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 is perfect of course it's perfect because we're aware of some of the best practices maybe um but our clients aren't that's why they hire us Exactly. Yeah, and it's it's partly that left brain, right brain thing, but also it's just unfamiliarity yeah. with the process yeah. of creativity. So I think you're exactly right. You know, I, I'll talk about how we have uh, discovery muscles and delivery muscles, and we creatives are great with discovery muscles. You know, yeah. we know how to exercise those a lot, how to yeah. have the ideas, but we also have to get those delivery muscles of how do we deliver this to our decision maker, to our boss, whomever, in a logical, meaningful, valuable way so yeah. they accept it. I yeah. love that. And I, I want to learn more about our delivery muscles and how we can strengthen those. Sure. Before we do that, you know, what's interesting to me is we can often blame our clients or our bosses maybe for, for being the bad guy. Like, oh, they just don't get it. You know, this idea was perfect. I can't believe they don't get it. Or our dumb clients, oh, they have the worst taste. But really it comes down to a delivery issue, doesn't it? It comes down to maybe more of our own ability to convince them or to help them see the brilliance of the idea. I just think it's interesting that the client or the boss becomes kind of the scapegoat when really it was our own inability to present the idea to begin with. Totally. Yeah, I, I've said that. I know you have too, and I've heard it said by team members over and over. Yeah, they, they just don't get it. They yeah. just don't get it. Yeah, oh, sure. that's right. And uh, David Ogilvy, the, the advertising giant pioneer, uh, had a wonderful saying that his quote was, "It's useless to be at a cre- it's useless to be a creative original thinker unless you can also sell what you create." And that management cannot be expected to recognize a good idea 
until it's presented to them by a good salesperson. Mm. And we as creatives have to recognize that we've got to be that salesperson yeah. from time to time. And we are somewhat turned off by that word sell. Yeah. Don't you think? Oh, yeah. yeah, it, yeah. It makes you think we'll of like an see. old brown suit and used exactly. cars. And what we're confusing it with is high pressure selling, that selling that we hate uh, from a used car yeah. salesman or, or somebody at an audio shop or whatever. And high pressure selling is when you're trying to sell something to somebody who doesn't need it, doesn't want it, can't afford it, or can't use it. Mm. Anytime you've got one of those four variables, or all four, then you've got to resort to high pressure selling because that's all you got. Yeah. So what we have to recognize as creative people is is we're not trying to sell people things, not presenting ideas that they don't need, don't want, can't afford, or can't use. What we're presenting is something valuable to them. But we have to do it in a way that they are accepting that. Yeah. Why do you think people are so afraid of public speaking? First and foremost is self-consciousness. Another reason, I think, is lack of preparation. Mm. I mean, lack of... If we're not fully prepared, and we're not confident that we can present whether it's present our idea or make a speech if we're not really prepared then we've got a right to be afraid right yeah. we've got a yeah. right to have some fear and then third and it's kind of counterintuitive to what i just said but it's true is striving for perfection we mm. think we've got to be perfect and we have to, when we realize that we're not going to be perfect but we've got to be the best version of ourselves then I think some of that fear begins to dissolve. Mm, I love that. There, There is the pressure for anyone that's ever watched Mad Men and they're in the creative professional world to have that Don Draper <laughs> that carousel moment, talk. the carousel <laughs> pitch where people literally cry in the room and, and it almost becomes the standard. Like, exactly. I, I didn't do a good job if I didn't make people cry. You know, exactly. and so that pressure is pretty yeah. hard to live up to, to John Hamm's performance. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. It's a classic. What's the worst thing that really happens, though? Because I think sometimes if you play out your fears, you think, okay, what is the worst thing that can happen? It, it alleviates some of that fear sometimes. So what? what is the worst thing that can happen? Well, in the very worst case, I guess you you won't get that idea accepted uh, in, in a particular case, or you won't make that speech that you hope to make. But probably in most cases, you might get your ego punctured a, a bit, yeah. be a little bit embarrassed, I think, yeah. is, is usually the worst case. Some of the worst cases I've seen is when someone's clearly not prepared. Yes. And they stumble through it, or they go way over their time, or they're repetitive. They're just kind of all over the place, and they're not very tight. Because you kind of judge that person a little bit. But you, you think, wow, here we are. This is your moment, and you haven't prepared. You've kind of wasted our time. People are expecting a performance. Yeah. They're expecting us to, to rise to the occasion. And, and it, what people often say, and I hear it when I go in to coach or train people over and over, I want to be natural. I want to be myself. Yeah. And, and, and we want you to be yourself. We want you to be natural. We don't want anybody to imitate someone else, but we need to be the best version of ourselves, yeah. not the ourselves that's sitting at a breakfast table or sitting at a bar with friends. Uh, we need to rise to the occasion. And that calls, to your point, to be prepared. Yeah. To be re- and to practice. Yeah. Yeah. So you've been in some big boardrooms, NFL, Major League Baseball, American Express. What's the, what's the worst thing that you've experienced in that setting? You would bring that up, wouldn't you? <laughs> I mean, I'm assuming you've had some bad experiences. Yeah. You probably haven't nailed every presentation you've ever had. 
You're right. Uh, no, I've ha- I've had uh, I probably have a file full of them. The earliest one I remember, Blake, uh, was way before the NFL, Major League Baseball, all of that. I, I was it was early in my career, and I was at that time helping a client who was trying to sell some products to a fashion designer, uh, some home furnishing product, uh, and I just wasn't to your point I, I just wasn't prepared I, I thought I was I thought I had my slide deck mm-hmm. and uh, and I had skimmed through my presentation but I wasn't ready for their questions I wasn't ready for their objections and I, I was it was rambling I, I got off base more than once and so I I was I was hurting. I can mm. remember. I can remember. This is years ago, and I feeling can, the heat. I can feel the yeah. heat. Yes, yes, and and it did not go well at all. My boss jumped in. He was there, and, and he saved the day. Eventually, you mentioned NFL. It took us, my my team and and myself, probably close to two years to get the contract to get the deal with NFL for a promotional deal. Back and forth to New York and other places. We had a, a, a great presentation put together, but we did not know our decision maker. I did mm. not really take the time to get to know the decision maker, the key decision maker, yeah. like I should. So we got off base. We said some things we should not have said if we had spent a little time doing our homework. We would have known not to go into some areas we went into in the presentation. And you could just see him lose interest. You could see him checking his phone mm. and, and zoning out. And so we almost lost that. We had to double back again a couple of times to, to get him back on track. So, yeah, yeah, there's been a lot of those. Yeah. yeah. But it always comes down, I think, as in my life, to preparation. When I was starting the Atlanta chapter of Creative Mornings, I had... Uh, thought through all the event logistics and details and and this was uh, right at seven years ago and I was thinking okay we're going to have this monthly lecture breakfast series like they have in New York and in Chicago I'll just start one in Atlanta it'll be easy and I thought okay I need to find a speaker found a speaker a friend of mine and uh, I'll invite all my friends and we'll get a lot of people to cram into our little office it'll be great and we had about 75 people show up and I remember I had all these details worked out, all the logistics where everyone would flow in, the registration table, all of that. And then I I got up in front of all 75 of those people to kick off the event. And I realized I hadn't prepared a single thing to say. And I just stumbled through the words. And I remember I was starting to get flush around my neck and was sweating and feeling all of that pressure. And, yes. and where you zone out, where you're thinking... I'm talking right now, but I don't know the words that are really coming out. Like you have that moment of consciousness of I'm doing a bad job right now. If I would have just prepared a little bit, uh, I would have been in better shape. And now I've done that event over 70 times and I could literally rattle off the intro in my sleep because I've done it so much. I've prepared and still every month I prepare in my car. I talk to myself out loud and I run through the intro, even though I've done it that much I still have to kind of refresh to make sure I can I can be sharp I start thinking about the audience while I'm in my car or in the shower or whatever and kind of going over even after I've rehearsed and prepared uh, going over certain lines that I, the way I want to deliver it and the reaction I hope to get and, yeah and I think that's an important part yeah to get your yeah. mental state there sure. one tip I've learned from you is to get a photo of the space to see it. So if I'm going to do a presentation, if someone's asked me to come speak, 
now because of a tip you've given me in the past I will ask them to take a picture of the room absolutely uh, a photo is good going and seeing it in advance is even better yeah. I mean I when I speak and, and I speak all over I almost always get in the night before and the very first thing I do before I go out to dinner before I do anything else is to go find the room you oftentimes it's in the hotel where I'm staying but even if it's not if it's in the conference or whatever is I go and and look at that room, walk around in that room, go to the, hopefully it's it's already set up, but even if not, go to the front of the room. So I'm very familiar with it. And I look for sight lines. I look for Hmm. outside interference that might be happening in the hallway uh, so that I have that room in my head because I almost always, the night before or the morning of, I'll go through my talk again. And if I've got that room and where I'm going to be standing in my head, then it makes it that much more real. And so I'm prepared that much better. Plus, I can overcome any, as you talked about, with the AV equipment and technology, I can begin to overcome any issues that might be there. Yeah. So I've got enough on my mind anyway (laughs) when I go in to make a talk or to make a presentation. So if I don't have that variable to worry about, to think about of what's the room going to be like and how is it going to feel, uh, then I'm ahead of the game. All right. So if if public speaking is one of the greatest fears of all humankind, uh, which is hilarious to me, but if it is the perceived number one greatest fear, why is that? How can people start to overcome it? I uh, recently came across some research that was done by uh, someone with the Mayo Clinic, and he interviewed, talked with hundreds of people about how do you find courage, how do you overcome fear, and in all fields, not just in public speaking, but anywhere in life, in any occupation. And he said it came down to three themes over and over again, and the one of them, not in any particular order, but one of them was uh, helping others. And the extreme example of that is somebody running into a burning building or jumping into an icy lake to save someone. And they asked them later, how were you brave enough to do that? And they said, well, I didn't even think about it. I just wanted to just help that it. person. Yeah. Uh, the second one is a uh, role, role model that people will say, well, you know, I thought, I think about my mother or my father who was brave, or maybe it's a public figure or a historical figure. And then the third one is faith. Is it, it may, They may be faith in a religion, God, higher power, or it could just be faith in a process. Like if you ask a Navy SEAL or a Delta Force person after a, a really dangerous mission, how did you find the courage to do that? you usually hear them say something like, well, we just have a process that we follow, and we've done it hundreds of times, and so we don't think about the fear. We just follow that process, and and it happens. If we go into a presentation or go into a a speech, whatever, and think about how can I help? How can I? I'm here to help this person. I'm here to help my decision maker or my boss. If we have, that takes the focus off of us, and suddenly we are reaching out and we're trying to help. So the, the fear begins to dissolve. 
Or if we think about role models, if we have role models, whether it's in our business or whether it's in the public sector, wherever, who are good presenters, good public speakers, whether it's watching TED Talks or or someone in our church or someone anywhere in in our family, and we, we don't try to imitate them, but we watch them and we see the confidence they have, and we begin to assume some of that ourselves, then we get courage. And then the third one is the faith. Um, if, if, if you pray or, or meditate, and, and if that's part of your belief, that, that works for me sometimes. I've used that many times in the morning before I go make a talk or a presentation. But also faith in the process. If we've prepared, if we've truly prepared ourselves, then we can have faith that it'll get us through, that yeah. we, we'll handle this presentation. We'll know how to handle objections. We'll know how to handle questions. We'll know how to logically make our talk in an in a appealing way. Let's jump towards, you had mentioned the delivery side. So most designers, writers, photographers, creatives in general, they're trained in school. They have mentors. They have bosses that help them on the quality, the craft side of whatever it is that they do. That's really their discipline. You know, they become experts in their craft. But then there's the delivery side. It's how you communicate it and how you present it and sell that to clients. So what are some of the most common mistakes that you see creatives do as they start to sell their ideas? From a content uh, standpoint, I, I see a, a lot of times selling the idea rather than the value of the idea. In other words, mm-hmm. they talk about the mechanics of the idea, the, ex- the execution of it, probably, without getting into what does this mean to the decision maker? What's the value to the decision maker? So they might get into the, the technical side of this font or this layout or this color is beautiful versus this this font is really useful and applicable and it's free on all your machines so it'll be easy to implement something like that exactly that and also not getting into the embodiment of the idea what is this going to mean in real life how is this going to be functioning for the customer or for the decision maker Mm. we have to step back and think about how can this how does this make sense to the decision maker so a lot of times i I see that misstep that people haven't really thought about if I were the decision maker and living in the decision maker's world, how can I talk to that decision maker the way that he or she will understand it in their vernacular? Mm. So a lot of times we'll use designer terminology yeah. or marketing terminology or whatever our particular craft might be. And, and it may be unfamiliar, as you said earlier, that's why they hire us. From presentation skills standpoint, uh, uh, there are a lot of mistakes as far as people not um, having a beginning, a middle, and an end, of coming in with a strong start. I mean, I see too many times people coming in and really not knowing how they're going to start their presentation. So you get this kind of, how are you today? Good to be here. All this kind of, you, and you hear that in public speakers too, where they don't have a strong start. And I always suggest, you know, when it's fine to have that ice-breaking conversation before your presentation. But when you stand up to speak, have a strong start. Go right into your presentation with a, with a strong start. And if you're... If you're somewhat nervous, uh, uh, one good way to start a presentation is to ask a question. 
ask the decision maker a question to start it off. So something, of course, that relates to what you're getting ready to get into. Right. That does two things. It involves the decision maker or decision makers, gets them interested, but also it takes the focus off of you for a second. Because that, as we talked about earlier, that's that big fear of when we first stand up, everybody's looking at us. So if we ask a question, it puts the, the spotlight on them for a few seconds, gives you a chance to breathe, and again, you've got that engagement, you've got that involvement with the decision maker. So I think that, that's a, a, a thing that can help. Uh, and then a lot of times people uh, will not know how to end a presentation just as much as they don't know how to begin it. So they will not know how to close the cell a lot of times. Or even worse, sometimes they may make the cell and not know when to stop. <laughs> they just keep going. And I, I've Talk seen, past the cell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I've seen sales uh, lost that way. I used to work with a, a, a creative director. And he was a great presenter. I mean, he was good at selling his ideas. But he, he didn't know when to stop. He mm. just kept going and going. And the decision maker would sometimes be waving money in front of his face, ready to go. And by the time he finished, the decision maker would put the money back in the pocket. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I think we have to be really careful of knowing, being able to really watch the decision maker and listen to what they say, what they don't say, and uh, and know when to stop the presentation as well. What are some practical tips for creatives who are looking to improve their idea selling and their presentation skills that they can consider and think about really get to know our decision maker i mean i think that is the thing that we stop too soon on very often uh when i had creative teams when i was in the business full time uh, we would keep files on all of our decision makers. Uh, it started back in the days with index cards, and then we, of course, moved them into uh, computers, to a database. But personally, anytime we made a presentation after it was over, we would do a download about things they said, questions they asked, things they seemed not to like, hmm. which was just important as what they did like. We would keep that all in a file, but we would also keep as much personal information about them as, as we could. What we learned from them, uh, talking to them, talking to people around them about their families, about what sports they enjoyed, what we saw in their offices. All of that was really valuable because it helped us to know their likes, dislikes, needs, wants yeah. a lot better. So often creative professionals don't understand the the perspective of uh, the business owner or the CMO or the CEO and, and what they really value. Because designers, specifically graphic designers, because that's what I'm most familiar with, or, or copywriters, they assume that the clients value being beautiful or they assume that they value something that creatives value and they don't understand that a CEO is primarily looking for maybe a return on his investment from a business perspective. He's looking for his company culture to be engaged and really, you know, consistent within the workforce or whatever. And we, and we don't translate our work as leveling back up Mm -hmm. to some of those needs and some of those things that they value. The return on investment it's important to to get across to them what return they can expect from the investment they're going to make in our idea, but also the risk of not investing 
in our ideas mm-hmm. is also important for them to know is, is what will happen if you don't go with this idea in terms of our competition, your competition, in terms of other factors. So I think all of that plays into it. I think we need to really be enthusiastic about whatever it is we're selling to. One of my uh, favorite salespeople, Brian Tracy. I learned a lot from him. He endorsed, as a matter of fact, my my book, Idea Selling. And he has a saying that selling is a transfer of enthusiasm. That will transfer. What about on the the presentation skill side? I have to keep going back to preparing because I think people, and I did for many years, confuse preparing with arranging. I mean, I knew how to arrange my slide deck. I knew how to arrange the order of my presentation, but I really didn't practice and prepare over and over again. I think if it's one thing that I've learned from being a public speaker for many years is that that never goes away. You know, we mm-hmm. tend to think that that great presenters, great speakers don't prepare or rehearse. Nothing could be further from the truth. They I've talked to very prominent speakers and they prepare and they rehearse over and over and over again. Malcolm Gladwell who I'm sure you you know and most of your audience will know he's very much an introvert. He says he's not good at dinner parties at all. He Mm. can rarely carry on a conversation. But he's a a good stage presenter. He does a great job. And he says that he practically memorizes his talks. He knows every word he's going to say and how he's going to say it. Practicing a lot and rehearsing a lot will help us be more natural because we'll be more at ease. I think really rehearse and getting some feedback. We're getting somebody else to, whether it's a friend, a neighbor, or a coworker, to listen to us and give us feedback, or if we want to hire a coach or a trainer to help us with it. Yeah. And and ideally videotaping it so we can watch ourselves and see where we're making those mistakes. It's always amazing to me when I'm coaching people and training people uh, to see their reaction when they see themselves on video. And, you know, inevitably they'll say, I had no idea that I did this. Yeah, and it's painful. It's painful to watch yourself. It's like hearing your own voice. You know, if you've ever listened to your own voicemail, you're like, oh, who was that stranger? That voice is weird. That's not me. I know. always. Who's that guy with the southern accent? I don't (laughs) talk like that. I also um, suggest a four-part mantra that I've used myself many times and and it does work is the first one is I'm excited to do this I'm excited to be here because a lot of times what we need to do is change that anxiety we're going to have anxiety I've been speaking for a lot of years and I still my adrenaline starts flowing in advance before I get there and I'm not afraid but there's there's a degree of anxiety and and uh, about how everything's going to go yeah. so if we can channel that from anxiety into excitement hmm. uh it's helpful the second one is i appreciate my audience i appreciate whether it's a decision maker that i'm getting ready to talk to or whether it's a room full of people I appreciate appreciate the fact that they're willing to listen to me. I appreciate the fact they're willing to hear about this idea. So that's the second one. The third one is I'm here to help. If we can go into a room 
and and with the attitude that I'm here to help. I'm not. Then that's what this is all about: is me helping them mm. with this idea. It takes the focus off of us and puts it on the idea on the other person. So that's probably the most important one of, yeah. of the four: is is really getting that in our head, is of being helpful. And then the fourth one is I know that I know. I know that I know. I've, I, that's assuming that we do know that we've done our preparation, yeah. that we've rehearsed, and I we know we know what we know, right? And we're going to go in and say what we know. If we don't know it, we're not going to say it. If somebody asks us a question that we don't know the answer, we'll say that's a great question. I'll get back to you later on it uh, as, as quickly as I can. But I, I, I've prepared. I know what I know, and I'm ready for this. And that mantra begins days before if not weeks before the presentation or the talk and continues up to the minute before you walk into that room or get up on that stage i coached a guy uh, he's a big head of sales for, in marketing for a firm and his ceo asked me to coach him coach this guy and I first thing I, I go to see the guy first thing the guy says I don't need any coaching I don't know why he sent you to me and I said really and he, yeah no I'm fine I love getting up on stage well I watched him, him present I went to one of his presentations and he was just boisterous he was overcompensating mm-hmm. for any insecurities he had he was boisterous and belligerent and uh, it, he just turned off audiences right and left uh, because of the way he presented himself. But he could not see it, and he was totally fine with it. Um, and it wasn't until we watched a lot of video together and and talked and let him talk to some people who had seen him present that he began to it began to get through that ego. And mm. but and, and then he had some fear because he saw he had some self awareness. Before he had no self awareness. Yeah. You know? Was his name Michael Scott in the office? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, he, uh, but yeah, I think that, you know, there's a thing in uh, the world of, of skiing, uh, uh, snow skiing, and probably some other sports as well, dangerous sports, uh, called the heuristic trap. And it comes about like you'll see very professional accomplished skiers who will go down uh, an area that's known to be uh, areas of avalanche and they'll have and, and what happens is they get overconfident they fall into what they call a heuristic trap is they think they can do anything they mm-hmm. have no no fear whatsoever and it sometimes leads to their death wow and we can have heuristic traps in presenting and speaking if we're just winging it and if we don't think there's any thing for us to stop and work on as i think about the creative community at large and we often need a pep talk creatives at whatever stage they are in their career they they need to learn from people that have been ahead of them that have figured out certain things so what's your halftime speech to inspire the creative community honestly blake it comes down to two words pay attention Pay attention. You, you've, I usually have it on. I think I've given you and, and some of your folks armband of uh, these wristbands that say pay attention because I think it's that important. And particularly in today's world, 
you know, a, a wealth of information leads to a poverty of attention. And today, the statistics and facts that show that more information has been produced in the last, I think it's 10 years, than was produced in the previous 2,000 years. Wow. So we're getting overwhelmed with information over and over all around us and we have more and more devices to watch that information and, and consume that information on. And I'm not against that. I'm all for technology. I, I use it all the time. But we really need to learn how and remind ourselves to pay attention to what's going on around it because that's that's the fodder for creativity. Totally. That's where we get the insights to remain and be creative and to have ideas. So if we can just take a deep breath and remind ourselves wherever we are to stop, look around, pay attention, pay attention to our family, pay attention to our friends, pay attention to the cashier in the grocery store, pay attention to what people are buying, pay attention to what they're not buying, pay attention to design, but really pay attention to our world around us. I think that's what's going to keep us creative and and help us be more creative because otherwise we can spend our whole day looking down at our iPhones. You know, I, I walk through airports all the time, and I've made a game out of seeing what percentage of people are looking down. And I'm guilty too. Yeah, of looking down at their iPhones or looking at their iPads, and you know, it's, it's easily seventy five percent. Oh yeah. And these, you know, kids, families. You know, you see everybody in the family sitting there together, and everyone I'm looking yeah, at. Yeah, I'm guilty as well. Totally. Yeah. Me too. And it's it's addictive. I mean, that's been proven. And yeah. so sometimes we need to look up. And look around and, and and really pay attention. So that's that's my uh, <laughs> billboard. You know, uh, Tim. Do you ever listen to Tim Ferriss podcast? Yeah. You know, he he always asked if you had a, a a billboard that millions of people could see. What would you put on it? And I, I think that would be mine. I love attention. it. Yeah. That's great. Well, I think it summarizes a lot of what we talked about. Pay attention to who your audience is that you're presenting to. Pay attention to their needs have more empathy try to understand who they are have more perspective on on who they are also pay attention to yourself you know practice rehearse put in the effort the time to to make your talk valuable of that person to, uh, worthy of that person's time pay attention to your own abilities as a presenter pay attention maybe to the details of what you're saying and how to communicate that most effectively to that that audience so so much of it, I pay think, attention is, to the room. Yeah, pay yeah, attention to the room. You're right, it all kind of comes back to that. Totally, it, it does, and, and I think that's uh, that that is so key. Is if we, if we pay attention, to, and it's different between self consciousness and self awareness. It's it's good to be self aware. In fact, that can help take away some of the self consciousness. I think so. If we can be self aware of how we're presenting, learn what we're doing right and wrong, what we can do better, and as you say, pay attention to our decision making, what their needs and wants and values are, then we'll become much better presenters. I'm I'm convinced. That's great. Yeah. Well, Sam, thank you so much thank for you, yeah. inspiring the creative community, for caring about idea spotting, idea selling, for collecting your wealth of knowledge and trying to pour back into others to help them uh, lead a successful uh, creative career. So thanks for your time. Likewise. Thank you for all you're doing here as well. Enjoy being with you.
If you like what you heard today, be sure to check out more from Sam Harrison. You can go to his website, zingzone.com, Z-I-N-G-Z-O-N-E.com. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. It really does help. If there is something that is bothering you in your creative career, let us know. Go to our website, thecreativerising.com, and send us a note. And maybe, just maybe, we'll do an episode on it. Today's episode was edited by Wes the Blaze Blankenship. Music by Josh Gargolin Garman. And a big shout out to Matchstick, a brand identity house. They lead organizations to discover who they are and how they best express themselves. Check them out at matchstick.com. That's M A T C H S T I C.com.